Welcome to the Dispatches Podcast. I'm Bramwell Ryan. Today we have another show in the Lake Winnipeg series. I'm speaking with Laura Lines, who works in the front lines of climate change and sustainability. She's the president of the Resilience Institute based in Canmore, Alberta. It helps communities build capacity to adapt to climate change. Three years ago, Lines was studying for a postgraduate law degree at the Centre for Environmental Law and Governance at the University of Strathclyde in Scotland. The title of her dissertation is intriguing. It's called Climate Change Law and Colonialism, Legal Standing of the Three Rivers, and a Hypothetical Case of Bison Personhood in Canada. In 22 pages, Lines argues that bison, especially those that remain on the Canadian prairies, should be made persons in the eyes of the law. After reading the paper, I wanted her insight on the concept of the rights of nature, or earth jurisprudence. Tapping her knowledge might make it easier to figure out if granting Lake Winnipeg legal standing could be a way to break through the inertia of decades of good intention, but lousy follow-through. If the lake was recognized as a person, would it do anything to improve the health of the lake? This is another in a series of full interviews I'm posting as part of the Lake Winnipeg series. That's a collaborative journalism project hosted by Dispatches. The idea is that together we can create a compelling story about how we've hurt the lake and find ways to undo the damage. This is your invitation to listen to what Lines has to say. Help me identify the key insights needed to build this story and let me know what stands out for you. See the show notes for details and be in touch. Thanks for listening to the Dispatches podcast. I'm Bramwell Ryan. My name is Laura Lyons, and I'm the president of the Resilience Institute, used to be called the Rockies Institute. We went through a name change, which was a reflection of our own adaptation, because we don't just work in the Rocky Mountains, but we also work outside of that, and really our main focus is on resilience and communities. So day-to-day is varied. We're a distributed organization, so fortunately we have already been working from home offices. And there was a little disruption with this COVID virus in that respect. And mostly it is the the travel I do would be related to working with communities on a number of different adaptation strategies to develop their overall resilience to climate impacts. Resilience is a big word and it can mean many things. So, I mean, practically and tangibly in the Canadian context on, on First Nations land at the high level, can you tell me what that is? Like, what kind of stuff do you do? I love that you asked that because it's actually one of the opening, when I do a session, one of the opening slides I use is just different definitions of resilience. And we look at it very holistically, especially with our First Nation partner communities, What does it mean to be resilient in the face of extraordinary challenges, whether it is from systematic colonialism or if it's from climate impacts that are anticipated or already being experienced? So from personally, how do you view change? How do you move through challenging times? And then from a community perspective, what do you have in place to absorb those shocks when they happen? And what systems do you have in place for planning for adaptation? 
So we use the formal definition that's provided by the IPCC. I believe they have a pretty good definition in the UNFCCC. But then we also look at resilience. How do psychologists define resilience? And what are the 10 main points about what it means to be a resilient person? And we try to make a relationship between the person making decisions and the community's wellness. It's pretty obvious that that the concept, personal or corporate resilience, is going to be an important concept even more so over the months and years to come, especially coming out of what are as yet unknown changes um, due to this pandemic. So moving the concept of resilience from the specific work you're doing to the concept of what we're talking about right now, the rights of nature, before I ask you to define what rights of nature are, do you see this as, as a resilient or a strategy of resilience? Absolutely. Because by applying the rights of an entity that is non-human, we are automatically saying that that entity has some kind of standing in the world versus something that we can just use for whatever we need to. And in order to move forward in a world where a pandemic can spread as fast as it did through all of these networks that we have now set up that have been largely around a commercial-based market commodity type of system, we need to be looking at nature differently. And I believe that nature's rights as a legal mechanism can help. Hmm. I want to go and explore that a little bit more, but let's back up a bit. In layperson's language, what does the phrase rights of nature or personhood or standing or earth jurisprudence, these all seem to be synonyms as far as what I can find in my research. Can you unpack that for me for, for a person who really doesn't know much about this? Different people have different views on nature, on a tree, on water, on animals. So when we talk about nature in this context, it would be applicable to everything that is non-human and living. So, I mean, we, you can get into whether it's a sentient being or not, but it's a pretty broad definition of everything that is non-human. If you were of a culture that believed that those non-human entities had rights in the world, that they, you, if you took something, whether it was an animal for food or a tree because you needed the lumber to build a fire to heat your home or cook your food, and you prayed and gave gratitude, you would be acknowledging that that entity has a, a right in the world like you do. We don't normally, and in our predominant society, we don't operate like that. We extract, we cut trees down, we do things with water because it's for human purpose. It's for our right to use these things. So legal standing just means that we would apply rights to those entities. And if you, I think the best description or the best comparison would be women at a time in North America were not able to vote. Still places in the world where they can't vote, but they weren't allowed to vote because they weren't classified as people. So once they were classified as people in the law, then they were allowed to vote. So it's really how we set up our system or legal system in that if we applied legal standing to an entity that is nature, then all of a sudden it has rights because we don't inherently look at those entities as having rights. I actually think that if we just considered these entities as having rights and respected them, we wouldn't have to apply the law. 
but the law right now would be a tool to maybe help that along. And boy, wouldn't it be beautiful one day if we didn't have to use law to respect nature and that nature just had intrinsic rights because people understood the interconnectedness of all life. The example of women not being able to vote, I get it, and of course I see it, but some might say, okay, a woman, even even if, uh, obviously it was the male culture, decided women didn't have the responsibility or the necessary whatevers to vote, a woman still, even in the eyes of those patriarchs, has agency, can initiate and, and well, is, is, a, is a person, perhaps minus some rights, according to them. Whereas compared to, say, a tree, you can't say a tree has agency. It's difficult to compare it to human. So can you just explain a little more as to how you see the parallels working? Well, yes, I think it depends on how you define agency, and it depends on how we communicate. So if we believe that only the entities who can speak up and communicate in the context of our systems, that they are the only entities that are communicating, and that agency is in part defined by their ability to defend themselves according to how we communicate, then that's problematic. And it, and it would be problematic. This is why the application of guardianship or stewardship is very important because obviously a tree can't come to court and say, look, you're infringing upon my rights. But there could be indigenous people who are put in place as guardians, or it could be ecologists, conservationists, for example, who come together and say, well, if we say these trees or this body of water or this animal has rights, what would those rights be? It has Maybe it has a right to life. It has a right to clean water as well. It has a right to not to be polluted. Whatever those rights are defined, that entity obviously can't speak up. So we would assign people to speak on its behalf. But let's just explore this a little deeper. Because what if the trees and the water and animals are speaking to us and are communicating? but we're just not listening. What would their communication be? So when you really look at some cultures and there's some, and I'm not, I'm not an expert on this, but there are certainly known elders, indigenous elders who do communicate with other than human. And it's not, they don't sit down and have a conversation, but there are messages. We can see these in oral traditional stories as well, that there's signs and there's patterns to behavior. I think a really neat way to look at this is many years ago, I was working with grizzly bear biologists, and he was describing this really great outcome of a pilot that they did in the Canadian Rocky Mountains, where they did two different strategies to keep grizzlies from being in areas, higher populated areas. And they were very predictable. So these strategies happened at certain times of the day. And over time, so the humans communicated what they wanted with the grizzlies and the grizzlies listened and responded. So it's an example of where there can be cross-communication and understanding if we know how to listen. I would hazard a guess that courts aren't particularly receptive to 
the concepts that we have to listen to those who are not human. So how do you think or how do you imagine personhood or standing would actually make a tangible difference in the way that natural objects or the world or the climate or the environment is changed? So first of all, what I've found is the application of personhood when it is aligned with a value, a human value, whether that is culture or whether that is a predominant value within the humans, such as we saw in India, that the personhood argument makes a lot more sense. So for example, water. We value clean water. We value water where maybe fish can, can live in it. There's all sorts of reasons for clean water, and that's a value. So to protect that water, how do you do that in a way that is ultimate protection? And the ultimate protection of that water would be that it has legal standing. And then who is the guardianships of that? Well, that could be multiple different stakeholders or rights holders. I think that when there are First Nations involved or other Indigenous peoples, there's an added component of culture to that because they have rights, and especially if they have treaty rights. So then you add on other rights to that, and all of a sudden, this non-human entity has the potential to have personhood, legal standing, and protection by those who would be assigned to protect it or to steward it and speak on its behalf. Mm. So moving a natural item or entity from object to subject, which is what this is really about, right? But then that usually means in order to enforce those rights, then that means we're going to court or the guardians or the stewards are going to court in most cases. Is that, is that right? Well, unfortunately, yes, because it's been contentious. I don't believe that it necessarily would have to be a fight, but it seems that's where most of them, I mean, most of the cases, when you, when you look at the current cases, it's been somebody taking somebody to court over something needing legal standing. So that presents a huge problem because who's going to afford to do that? Who's going to take the time to do that? And it is, it's a huge investment to decide to do that. But I'm actually really surprised that it hasn't happened more in Canada. Canada has a new pilot program, the guardianship program, First Nations Guardian program that they've started, which when you read it, it's the same kind of idea that First Nations are guardians over their land and there's rights there because of their cultural rights, their rights as First Nations people, but not rights for nature. And I, I just feel like maybe there is an opening here for either a First Nation, an NGO, or even a legal group who is interested in taking this on and using it as a way to protect some of this really vulnerable landscapes and waterways that we have, especially our watersheds. The working paper you sent me was wonderful. But in that, lots of cogent stuff, but there's a lot of, I think probably unavoidably so, conditionality. There's lots of shoulds or coulds or oughts, you know? And, and it strikes me that those who have power, whomever that is, generally only relinquish it when they're faced with a must and there's compulsion. So do you actually see a transition or say the, the first example of non-human personhood being bestowed actually happening without that, that force, probably of a court? Oh, 
I do see it as a potential if you have the right players there. And that would mean your legal system, whoever, whether it's provincial or national jurisdiction, who are the humans, what is the state's or the province's view on protection, and just how, I guess, ambitious do you want to be? It's a tool. It is a legal tool that can fast track the protection of nature. And I believe that there are people who are in these mechanisms that we have set up, these these structures of life that absolutely would look at that as a tool. And yes, we can use this and let's get it going without it having to be contentious. That said, if it needs to be contentious, then I would really hope that somebody takes that on and starts looking at the different cases, especially around Canada, where we could apply the rights of nature because it has been a successful tool. And it's not that in the long run, there aren't complications with it. There are certainly complications with how it gets exercised, but it sends a very strong message to the people that whatever is happening to that, whether it's pollution or extraction without consultation or whatever it is that they feel is not working, not only in the favor of one group, but all of us, we all benefit from clean water. So if some sectors or some people continue to abuse nature, then it hurts all of us. And I believe that unfortunately, through the pandemic, my hope is that people will appreciate the interconnected we, ha- we have with each other and with nature in ways that we maybe weren't able to see before. I actually co-presented with a fellow who is an expert in the work that's been done in New Zealand that would be probably good for you to speak with because he's very, I mean, it's more about the process of what it took to get personhood and all, there's some really wonderful things that happened in that process. And I think that capturing some of that would be quite inspirational to listeners or readers because it's not just about this contentious thing. It's about how these two very different worldviews actually came together and created a new way of living and viewing this shared, I don't want to say commodity, but shared resource, or I don't even like the word resource, but the gift. Thank you. That's much better. <laughs> it is certainly part of it. It's um, one can get mired in sort of the legal difficulties and terminology and stuff, but there is the birthing of a new reality, right? Um, that is on the other side of arguments. So it's kind of interesting to look at what might be there. I do find it's quite interesting. There was now it was the New Zealand case uh, was resolved in 2017, and there were a few other things around 2017. That's actually the year of your working paper. There's sort of a flurry of stuff around 2017, and I haven't heard, and in my research, haven't heard a lot of stuff since. Is that because it's sort of still percolating in places and it's still relatively new, or was it a bit of a an area of interest and it's died off a bit? What do you think? Oh, I think it's. I think it's probably percolating. I haven't looked at the cases since, but it actually there was a flurry and then it seemed there was a lot more, but it takes so much time. So when does it actually get into the news is the question. Probably when it gets into the courts. So the lead time to get there is a lot of groundwork. So I think it's more of a reflection of that. 
And probably there's been other strategies since then, like the Guardian program. So I would, and then it's actually something I'm quite interested in looking at is instead of doing, like, why are First Nations in Canada not using legal rights? And I've had this conversation with a few of them. And as far as I can tell, it's not a matter of that this isn't a great idea and they should. It's a matter of how can we do that plus deal with all of the other challenges we have going on right now and who's going to help us through that. So it's champions at, it's like a convolution of all of these things that need to come together. The champion, the legal champion, the First Nation or, or NGO and or NGO all coming together and having the will and the energy and money, I guess, time to be able to do that. And so I think it's more, if we're not seeing it in the news like we were, it's a reflection of that than anything. There are people and groups that are well entrenched in the process. They just, we just haven't heard much about them yet, but we hope to at some point. Yeah. And so when I send you this, you'll see the cases that are in process and then the ones that are further along it actually gives a pretty good breakdown okay well you know i really appreciate your time it's possible i may have a follow-up few questions at some point farther along but uh, i'd pop you an email to see if you're willing to talk to me again but in the meantime thank you very much mm-hmm.